All right, so episode 55 with Dr. J. Tito is about to start. But before I get into that, who of you are going to the Long Beach Perform Better Summit? Because you know what? This is going to be my first year at it, and I would love to meet some of my listeners. So if you are, you know, shoot me an email, hit me up on social media, let me know that you're going, and I'll look out for you, or you can find me. Again, I have long hair, tattoos, and I'll most likely will be wearing the Cut the Shape Get Fit t-shirt that also will actually be available in a couple weeks, so keep an eye out for that. And this episode, I gotta say, was just plain awesome. Jade is... I, there's there's no words. He's just plain freaking awesome. And every answer he gives you, he puts in so much thought and effort. And honestly, I'm just going to butcher any kind of summary. And I just want you to guys to go ahead and listen to it. Hey, guys, welcome back to another episode of Cut the Shit, Get Fit. I'm your host, Rafael Matuszewski. And joining me today is Jay Tita. Say hello. Rafael, what's going on, man? I, I, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm glad to find someone else with a unique name. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I'm happy. I'm happy. Uh, to break the ice for the audience, can you tell them what you got going on this weekend? Yeah, well, you know, let me see what's going on this weekend. Actually, my publisher, my uh, online publisher has got me uh, working like crazy for a new project that's uh, coming out, uh, Metabolic Renewal, which is my new program on female-specific fat loss and I am pretty much in all weekend, to be honest with you, because I'm on a deadline to get that uh, finished. That's getting launched in uh, September. And so sometimes I'm a creator. So sometimes I got nothing going on all week. uh, And, you know, but this weekend I'm going to be in 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 the house writing and stuff. So not not a fun weekend. Well, it depends. It's fun for me. I don't know if that's fun for other people. Oh, it's exciting. It's a new project. It's like a new little baby to like nurture to make sure it goes off into the world and you know, everyone will hopefully love it, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny about that, man. It's like I, uh, you know, I'm as a creator and, you know, you as well. I mean, I would be doing that stuff. Uh, you know, I, I do this stuff for free. So from my perspective, it's actually fun. But I talk to other people about that. and They're just like, you know, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm staying in writing. They're like, oh, that's too bad. I'm like, actually, I love it. You know, so it's that's what I would rather be doing, to be honest with you. No, I know what you mean. Like when people, like one of my clients asked me, like, "Oh, what do you got going on this week?" And I'm like, "I'm going to be editing a lot of videos, and I can't wait for it." <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. a weird thing. It doesn't feel like work, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, for the audience, can you tell them who you are, what you do, and how did you get into this industry? Yeah, I mean, I think the best way for the listeners to understand who I am, you can imagine a personal trainer. I started at 15 years old, believe it or not. I've been doing it close to 30 years, so. Take that personal trainer, put it in a blender with a biochemist. That was my undergrad degree. And then I went on to uh, medical school, and my degree is in naturopathic medicine. So the best way to think about that is a primary care physician who specializes in lifestyle medicine, so diet and exercise, supplements. I still prescribe drugs. I have a license in Washington State and California but drugs are sort of the last resort for me. So take that personal training background, put it in a blender with the sort of natural medicine uh, physician. And then my other, uh, my third sort of area of expertise is self-help and self-development, which I've been uh, studying since I went through my first breakup at 18 years old. And it's informed a lot of what I've done, because as we know, uh, in the fitness industry, if you're going to get people to change the way they eat and exercise, mindset really comes first. And that's the thing that uh, is probably my um, my biggest expertise, but it's the thing that I'm uh, least known for, actually, which is funny. So take all that, mix it up in a blender, and you get a guy who's sort of a meathead philosopher who's also an expert in metabolism and hormones, and that's pretty much me. That's awesome. So what, yeah, yeah. So what made you want to go down the naturopathic route and not become like a regular medical doctor? Yeah, well, you know, it's funny that that story is was a, a really tough time in my life, and because I had spent, you know, since fifteen, like I told you, 
priming myself to get ready for medicine, you know, and, and to be a physician. And so by the time I had gotten to the place where I was applying to medical school, I had been working as a personal trainer. I had been studying diet and exercise. I had been, uh, you know, sort of working in the trenches with people changing their lives through diet and exercise. And when I went to look, the school I was getting ready to go to was East Carolina University. My mentor was on the board there. He was wanting me to go there really badly. So I was like, okay. I started looking at the curriculum and I don't know why up to that point I was just so, I, I just didn't, I just assumed that they would have education on diet and exercise and sort of lifestyle medicine. And when I looked at the curriculum, I was shocked, shocked and depressed really. Cause I was like, I can't believe this is just basically a, you know, a, a, a drug uh, education. You know, it's not that there's any issue with drugs. I do both, but I just couldn't believe that that's pretty much all we were getting. I didn't have one course of nutrition in the curriculum and not one course in the curriculum on exercise. And that just was unacceptable to me. So actually for a time there, I was thinking, what am I going to do? I'm definitely not going to follow this path because that's not my passion. And then my older brother, Keone, uh, showed me this school called Bastyr University, which at the time was sort of this fringe alternative medical school that all my friends, my mentor, everyone said, you don't want to do that, man. That's witchcraft medicine and that's this and that. And I was just like, I'm not, I don't care if someone calls me a witch doctor or what they call me. I want to do meaningful medicine. I want to help people make change in their lives. And so I took a risk and went to that university. And what's really interesting is back then that was not something that you wanted to, uh, you know, you were, uh, it was not something that anyone was excited about. And then over time it became something that was, uh, everyone loves alternative medicine now and it's everywhere. Everyone wants to talk about herbs and everyone wants to talk about the different diet they're on and everyone wants to talk about exercise. Well, at that time, that just wasn't the case. And so perfect timing. I went to this medical school, got my degree, learned sort of both conventional and alternative and complementary medicine. And now I'm sitting in a position where, um, you know, it almost seems like I planned it perfectly, although it just wasn't planned at all. It was just a dude following his passion, if that makes sense. No, it does make sense. And I think I, I personally love naturopaths because they get right into like the root of the problem and not you going to a medical doctor and you're like, oh, I have high blood pressure. Here's some pills and not even like mention, maybe we should look at your diet. Maybe we should see if you're even exercising like. I just like that approach better than most conventional doctors. Yeah, well, you want to know it's funny. I'll tell you, uh, and this is where some of the nature paths might get upset at me. I am equally, um, I'm sort of equally, uh, uh, what's the the word, (laughs) frustrated with both medical doctors and sort of the alternative community, medical community. And the reason why is because I think both, run the same problem. The, the medical doctors are so biased towards their drugs and surgery, and the alternative and complementary medicine people are so biased towards natural methods. And really what we should be doing is science-based medicine on both sides, looking at it from the standpoint of what are the natural therapies that make the biggest difference? Let's use them. What are the drugs that are the safest, and when should we be using them? And so for me, I really have become disenfranchised with both the medical community and the alternative medical community. And I sort of straddle uh, the middle. And I hope that more people will sort of uh, begin looking at it that way, because I do think that uh, the naturopaths, you know, sort of run the same bias. Uh, They just do it in the other direction, if that makes sense. No, you're like 100% right. And I completely agree with you because I work with a naturopath out in um, Vancouver here. And what he does is he actually tries to contact his patient's uh, medical doctor and try to actually work together. But his like percentage of doctors that are open to it is so small. And he's kind of frustrated that, you know, people don't have this open mind to be like, Hey, maybe this works too. And I, I almost wonder like, where does this divide kind of happen? Like, do you think when these people go to med school, they almost teach you that, you know, because you're becoming a doctor you're on this pedestal and no one can like, bring you down? Like, what's your opinion on this whole divide between MDs and NDs? Yeah. You know, look, it's, and actually I think the listeners, one of the first lessons I think are clinical pearls I can give people is this thing right here. I think that ultimately the problem with the medical community, the alternative medical community, uh, you see it in politics, politics, you see it in religion. You're now seeing it in nutrition with people is bias and dogma. 
Bias and dogma uh, get us in trouble every time. It's not that people are uneducated. It's not that people are, you know, unintelligent. It's that people are so stuck in their bias and their dogma. And once you run into that in a practitioner or yourself, in my mind, you're in trouble. And I think that's part of the first thing we all need to do when we're even looking after our own health care. Right. So when we're thinking about changing our bodies, you know, uh, losing weight, getting healthy and all this kind of stuff, we need to stop having this bias of like there's I got to go on the paleo diet or I'm going to be vegan because we believe in it. It does. And, and, and then we become religious and like zealots with that particular approach when it may or may not be working for us. And what we want to do is find and use what works, regardless of where it comes from. And if you're so in your bias and so in your dogma around nutrition or drugs or whatever it is, you can't do that. And so uh, I find that that is the biggest problem in the MD community, in the ND community, and in the community of individuals who are trying to make a difference in their health and fitness. It's the one thing that we need to guard against. It's it's basically find what works for you. And the only way that you can do that is question in a way that uh, takes on your bias, your dogma, your self-righteousness, and your need to be right. Instead, let's find what works. No, you're right, too. And that's kind of like the last couple of years I've been realizing where, you know, for example, if someone that I'm training, they're like, oh, I'm going to try this CrossFit thing. And back in the day, I'd be like, oh, no, it's kind of dangerous. You shouldn't be doing it, blah, blah, blah. But I'm like, this person's motivated to put exercise in their life. Like, why would I be the person stopping that? Or if someone was really motivated to try a new diet and I knew it wasn't the best, but this is the first time they ever showed interest in improving their diet, then why stop them, kind of lead them in the right direction after? And maybe that's kind of the way that we should be going in. Yeah, I think we have to meet people where they are. And, you know, it's funny, you know, you talk about CrossFit. I think a lot of people were anti-CrossFit for a while because they were seeing one side of things. And remember, one of the things is confirmation bias makes us see things only from the angle that we want to see things. So if we're already sort of anti-CrossFit and we hear someone talk about CrossFit or we see some CrossFit video, we already think it's bad and we stop looking at it for the benefits that it can give us. And once you start looking at the benefits, what you start to find is that, oh, there are many, many CrossFit centers that are not only good, but better than your average personal trainer. And that some personal trainers are horrible and some are fantastic. Some CrossFit centers are horrible and some are fantastic. And you know, you get this whole gray zone and you start to realize that it's not about picking teams. It's about building and creating your own team from all the good sources of information. And those inf that information can come from anywhere. And so we have to, in my mind, uh, get away from this natural, very natural human tendency. I do it. You probably do it. All the listeners do it. But you have to be aware of the idea that your bias, your self-righteousness, your beliefs around diet and exercise may or may not be serving you. And so instead of just joining a team, I'm on the CrossFit team or I'm on the paleo team or I'm on this or that team, you should instead be saying, what is working for me and what is not working for me? And I'm going to take different pieces from many different areas. As a matter of fact, one of my um, favorite sayings is by one of my heroes, Bruce Lee, who said, absorb what is useful, discard what is not, and add what is uniquely your own. And when it comes to health and fitness, to me, I think this is the best way to do this. We need to be more like metabolic detectives then we need to be dieters, right? And uh, I think that's very, very important. In fact, I think it's the most important thing, which is obviously why uh, we're having this discussion. No, like I, I totally love your points and it just, ma it just makes sense. Like I tell clients all the time, like your body's a giant puzzle piece and you got to find what like fits and what works for you because what works for you might not work with the person beside you. And that's how I approach it. And if a client comes up with this, new thing that I've never heard about. I'm like, sure, go for it. Let's see what happens. If it doesn't work, let's move on and continue what we're doing. Yeah. You know, what's funny about that is that a lot of trainers, I think, right. They, they, they don't realize that taking that approach actually allows you to be better at your job. Because I think a lot of people say, well, if I do that and I take that approach. Then what does 
you know, what what do people need me for? Well, you go from sort of uh, you go into a, a coaching mentality, right? Instead of being a dictator, do this, do that. Let me let me manage everything you do. Instead, you go into the coach's role. And what a good coach will do is find people's signature strengths and help them exploit those signature strengths and find where they're weak and help them bolster those weaknesses. And that's going to be different for different people. And so you want to really be looking at this from that point of view, whether you're an individual working on yourself or whether you're someone coaching individuals. And I think also like being open and having your client almost fail at something, knowing that it's going to go that way is almost like a wake up call for them. And I had like one client who wanted to do this like detox thing. And before I would be like, no, don't do it. It's so stupid. But I'm like, sure, let's go for it. She did it for 14 days. And I was like, okay, so like, what did you learn? And she's like, I freaking hate detoxes. It was the worst experience of my life. And then now she's actually like on board about like actually eating enough and moving more and things like that. So I don't, I think failure has kind of a big influence on people's success. Uh, I couldn't agree more. And, and here's the way I'll give, give the listeners sort of an understanding about how this works, because I, I do exactly the kind of thing that you do. People come in and they have certain things that they gravitate towards. I mean, we have to remember, we each have our, our unique metabolic expression, our psychological sort of sensitivities and our personal preferences. And the psychology piece and the personal preference piece is huge. Right. And what we want to do is we want to let people uh, gravitate to the things that they like. Right. And then help them understand whether they work for them or not. So, for example, someone comes in and says, I want to do a detox. We may or may not think it's a good idea for us. And if we're good and we worked with a lot of people, we may actually have enough clinical experience to to bet, to make a bet and say, I doubt this is going to work for this person because I've seen it fail for so many other people. However, I'm going to let them do this and I'm going to let them see how it impacts their hunger and how it impacts their cravings and how it impacts impacts their energy. And I'm going to let them experience how dropping a bunch of water weight for a weekend uh, is a temporary thing and actually can result in binge eating behavior for a week. So yeah, you have a great weekend, you lose five pounds of water, it's not fat, and then you get this rebound craving hunger energy effect. That is a good lesson for us as coaches or for us as metabolic detectives personally to understand about ourselves, right? And so rather than focusing on what you shouldn't or shouldn't do, instead, I'm usually focusing on, hey, look, your body is sending feedback signals to you all the time. Hunger is a feedback signal. Cravings are a feedback signal. Uh, The way you sleep, mood changes, those are feedback signal. Your performance in the gym and your exercise recovery, this is feedback for you. And if you start paying attention to how diet and exercise and these kind of things make you feel and function, then you can begin to piece together things that actually work for you. And I agree, the more you fail and the faster you fail, it's just like in business, right? The more you learn your body faster. As a matter of fact, I used to purposely put people through a four week, uh, you know, sort of uh, quick fat loss phase. And I got them in because everyone's like, "Ooh, I want quick fat loss. Right. But then as soon as they got in, I basically then taught them the lesson that this is the exact wrong approach. And we're using this four weeks to figure out how your body functions for the next 12 weeks and for life. In other words, we used the detox kind of approach to get people in this fast fat loss. And then we said, hey, by the way, it doesn't work like that. And if you're really going to make this work, you're going to have to understand what is going on in your body. And here's how you do it. Here's how you read the signals. Here's how you, uh, you know, um, troubleshoot some of this stuff. And what ends up happening is people fail really quickly and they get a very tangible example of what it feels like to be in metabolic compensation or metabolic resistance and to have themselves fighting their physiology. And then we teach them that they don't have to do that. And that approach works so much better. People call it many different things, mindfulness, uh, you know, moderation, whatever it is. But most all people who are successful eventually learn to be very mindful and moderate and work within their limits versus chasing every program around. I don't mind if people do programs, by the way. You know, to me, it's like just do them with the right mindset. Do them with the, the attitude of I'm not following this program to find something that is the holy grail. I'm doing this to learn 
how my body functions. And when you do it under that way, after four or five programs, now you've learned a great deal about your body. Now the only program that you're following is the one you built for yourself. What do you think about those people that will, you know, do one cleanse and then they finish it, they do another detox or they find another diet. They're almost like hopping to the next thing because they didn't achieve what they wanted previously. Like, is that almost like a psychological thing or like, have you had any experience with people like that? Yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, I think, you know, most of us who do this work, those are the kind of people that come to us, right? So they might find my book or books or programs, and it's just the latest program that they are jumping into, right? The latest, greatest thing. We humans have this very weird thing that we want novelty, right? So we think anything novel is effective when the truth of the matter is novel things have not been proven yet. They're not tried and true. They're new. And so people always want to go to the new thing. And this gets people in trouble. And so what I do is I essentially say, look, you want to begin taking all this experience and using it to your advantage. People who program hop back and forth to different things like you're talking about. If someone had told them in the beginning, this is okay, so long as you're using each program as a lesson to understand your body. Most people don't do that, though. In fact, they don't even think that way. They just think, well, that didn't work. I'll try the, new, the next thing. Well, that didn't work. I'll try the next thing. They don't realize, by the way, that the way the metabolism works, the very thing you are doing to try to lose weight and get fit is often because of the way the metabolism works working against you. Uh, you know, we know this from the biggest loser study, right? I mean, everyone's, everyone kind of who did this work was like, this is what happens. We know if you try to lose weight and do these programs, there's going to usually be a rebound effect if you don't figure it out. You can't just do it for 12 weeks. You have to do it for 12 years, right? You have to take it as a lifestyle change. We all say that. And we found out in the Biggest Loser study, they followed these people for six years, put them, obviously, everyone knows the Biggest Loser, sticks them in fat camp for three months, exercises them like crazy, starve them to death. People lose a lot of weight and everyone gets so excited about that. Oh my God, look how much weight they lost, et cetera, et cetera. Not realizing that the very thing they did for that three months set them up for fat gain and metabolic dysfunction for the next three years. And so the biggest loser becomes the biggest gainer. And people have got to start understanding this. And as coaches, as a coach, uh, you know, I fell prey to this myself. I, I started realizing that you know, it's not that they're being non-compliant. It's that I'm giving them something that does not work and is making them, in some cases, some people worse off in the long run. And that is just if you're going to be a conscientious, smart, you know, sort of coach, and if you're going to be someone who is doing this as a layperson and working with yourself and not being going harder, but being smarter about it, you have got to understand how the metabolism works. So. What I would say here is that a lot of people get confused with this because they essentially would go, well, okay, Jade, I understand, but how do you get started? Well, I use a term I call structured flexibility, and essentially we can provide you a structure based on what we know works for most people. I mean, like, you know, let's face it, we are humans and most of us share a degree of metabolism, but we also, our metabolism is also a lot like a fingerprint. And we function very differently. Some people are a little bit more insulin resistant. Some people are a little bit more stress and cortisol reactive. Some people like wine and some people like peanut butter. And some people can drink wine and it keeps them from overeating. And some people can drink wine and it makes them eat like crazy. There's all these differences. So we can give a structure and say, here's where we think you want to start. But from there, we have to understand it's just a starting point. It's just a blueprint. And from there, we need to help people understand how to tweak and adjust and sleuth like a detective, figure out what's working and what isn't and make the adjustments necessary so that they can find what works for them. In my way of thinking, there's only one rule of nutrition, diet, exercise, and that is do what works for you. But to do what works for you, you kind of have to you know, find and then create what works for you. And so there is some education that has to happen. The first education is understanding how the human metabolism works in general. And then the second education is understanding how your uh, metabolism works uh, as an individual. Yeah, you're right. And I think that would be a great way to get into this next question is like hormonally, what happens to an individual's body if they decide to go on a re really restricted diet or a cleanse or a detox? Like what happens on the inside? What should yeah. the listeners know? 
Yeah, I mean, like, here's the way to think about this. Um, your metabolism is nothing but one big stress barometer. That's what it is. Your metabolism's job is to read what is going on in the outside world so that your inner cells know how to respond. So your eyes see light in the morning and hormones are released to tell the inside cells here, you need to get up now and you need to function. You need to be more active. You, uh, you have lots of food around. So your body says, hey, it must be summertime, must be springtime. We have plenty of food. Let's eat, let's move more, let's maybe store fat for the coming winter. Basically, your metabolism is taking all this inside, outside information and making changes inside your physiology. Now, if you understand that, you understand that any type of stress is going to register to your metabolism and it will respond. So your metabolism is not a calculator, it's not a chemistry set, it's more like a seesaw or a boomerang or a thermostat. It responds and pushes back against you when you push on it. So when you start over-exercising and under-eating, what do you think that, res that response means to the metabolism? Well, it probably means something a lot like it's getting close to wintertime, lots of animals are not around anymore, foraging isn't really being productive, and so I don't have a whole lot of food, and uh, I'm not able to uh, find it, and I have to move around a lot, right? And so it's basically saying to your metabolism, winter is coming, stress time is coming, so what's the metabolism do to protect you? The metabolism slows down thyroid function, slows metabolic rate. It also makes you hungrier. It makes you have more cravings. And it does that because it basically has to keep you motivated to try to find food. And so if that stays prolonged, essentially the body starts to reduce its metabolic rate even more because then it starts registering starvation. Now, if food comes back into the picture, which in ancient times it wouldn't have, we'd have the whole winter to get through and we get nice and lean and then we start to cycle over. But for us, the drives get too great that we're just like, well, I'm just going to walk down the street and get a pizza or I'm going to go get one of these, you know, big boo-boo Starbucks, you know, uh, shakes that has like a thousand calories in it. And all of a sudden what we were doing to try to get the weight off is the exact cause of what's making us crave and binge and do all that stuff. And so this is exactly what happens. Then we gain all that weight back. And so you can think of this like a metabolic credit card, right? We all know what a credit card is like. I want to go buy a new stereo or take a vacation. I can put it on my credit card and it's fun and I get to listen to music and I get to go out and, you know, hang out and have my vacation. But when I come back and I get that first credit card bill, I have now got to pay penalties and I have to pay the piper, so to speak. And this is what happens with the metabolism. The very things you are doing, especially if they are extreme to take the weight off, are the things that are causing you to gain all the weight back. And you have to be aware of this. This is the way the metabolism works. No, that makes a lot of sense. Like that was the last 10 minutes were just like amazing. That made a lot of sense and probably cleared up a lot of things for people. And my next question is like, hopefully you've heard of the Bernstein diet. Have you? I have not actually. Uh, so the general thing is like, from what I've heard, because I've had a couple of clients do it here, and you go on a diet of like 800 calories, and then you have to go into a clinic to get like vitamin B shots and things like that to almost kind of carry you over. And when I had these clients do it, like I've never seen people lose weight so quickly, but at the same time feel like complete shit. <laughs> and, um, all of them gained all the weight back and even more. And I remember talking to, I can't remember who it was. I think it would have been Dean Somerset who actually took the time to see where the fat loss was coming from. And all of it was just muscle mass. And I'm like, well, kind of makes sense. You're not even eating enough to like maintain human function. So my question is like, cause I know with some naturopaths, they do those like IV drips. Like, are they, useful at all or are they just kind of a waste of time the, the, to me they're an absolute waste of time uh you know this is coming from a nature path i, I can say this uh, i've been doing this work for a very long time and i'll say this mds do it nature paths do it and you know i'm just gonna not i'm not even gonna be uh shy about this it is plain stupid it is dumb lazy medicine people using this and not even understanding that they are doing harm 
to their clients in the long run. It does not matter you're doing B12 drips or you're giving HCG or any of this stuff. You cut down calories to 800 calories per day, right? And you do that for someone over the long point, the long term. And we live in an environment of highly palatable foods. You're not only going to make them feel like shit, but you are going to basically turn them into the, the Goodyear blimp once that diet ends. That is not sustainable. It is not healthy. And it is just dumb medicine. And, I, and, and there's no other way around us. We know that the science tells us conclusively this stuff is not smart to do. It's not smart to do. There are far better ways to do this. I'll give you one as an example. The better approach to be, rather than cutting calories down, one of the best approaches for helping people lose weight is simply bump up the fiber and or the protein content of their diet. Whether you're a vegetarian, if you don't eat a lot of meat, fine, just bump up the fiber or bump up the protein. And what this does is it, it fills you up. It satiates you. It makes you less likely to overeat. It stabilizes blood sugar. And as a result of that, you automatically end up eating less without feeling like crap. And this also does another thing to your metabolism because it tells your metabolism, hey, maybe I'm not starving. I am getting uh, you know, food into my system. But you're automatically creating a calorie deficit without the extreme measures. I'll say this, look, a low calorie, healthy, real food, organic diet, all those things are not healthy, organic, real food or any of that if it, as a result of eating it, causes you to eat all the wrong things later. And that's essentially what we're doing. We take this very, this approach of like, don't eat that, eat this instead, not realizing that if you're feeding someone just, you know, um, real foods and organic foods and telling them to cut out carbohydrates and all this kind of stuff. And as a result of doing that, it causes people to binge eat later. That's a problem. I'll give you guys a tangible example of this. I call it the banana effect. I've experienced it myself. I remember when I first started experimenting with low carbohydrate diets. Well, one of my favorite foods is a banana. And I love bananas. I used to have them before workouts, after workouts. It's like the perfect fast food. But as a result of being on this low carb, quote, low carb diet, I cut out all bananas. And so what ended up happening is I wouldn't have the banana. And as a result of that, I'd be craving after two or three days, I'd be craving all kinds of carbohydrates. I ended up binging on cheesecake and cookies and crackers and all that kind of stuff. At that point, the banana didn't do it for me. Had I just had the banana, I would have been able to stabilize my blood sugar. I would have been able to uh, use it to my advantage. And so the extreme measures that people are taking are leading to the extreme measures that people are taking. What I mean by that is you go extreme in one direction, your metabolism will make it extreme back in the other direction. And if you learn one thing from this particular you know, discussion, learn that. It is the reason why people are failing. And I'll give you the statistics on this. We know this. That's why I say it's, it's just bad medicine for major pass and MDs to do this because we know this. The research is clear on this. 95% of individuals who take that approach doesn't matter. doesn't matter what approach. It could be a keto diet, a vegetarian diet. You name the approach. 95% of individuals lose the weight and then regain it. And two-thirds, 66% of individuals on any of these diets, by the way, end up being fatter in the long run. And the reason why is because we're trying to take a one-size-fits-all approach to a situation that is infinitely varied, and we think we're being smart about it, and we think just giving B12 or giving an injection makes us smart about it. Nope, it's still dumb. It doesn't change the fact that it's dumb, and it's ignoring how the metabolism works. No, you're right, and I think binge eating now is almost like a common thing because there's so much information out there and so many different diets and people are constantly trying them and having that rebound effect like you're saying and end up like yeah eating a whole cheesecake or a whole pizza to themselves like what kind of advice would you give people who are struggling to get out of that binge eating cycle like what are some steps that they can do to get out of that funk yeah step number one Use the foods that science has told us that work for most people. For example, what we want to do is we want to eat foods that are the most satiating foods in general. Okay, What are these foods? These are essentially proteins and fibers. What are they specifically? These are essentially vegetables, 
right? Because they're mostly fiber, not a whole lot of starch, and lean protein sources, chicken breast, uh, lean steak, uh, bison, and things like that. Forget about what you heard about, oh, you need fat in your diet and this and that. Those are the most satiating macronutrients, okay? Technically, fiber is not a macronutrient, but fiber and protein. Then you add on to that enough starch, sugar, salt, and fat to make your diet enjoyable. If you want to know what this is like, think about scrambles, soups, salads, and shakes. Egg scrambles with vegetables, soups that are mostly vegetables or lean protein, salads that are mostly vegetables or lean protein, and protein replacement shakes and things like that. Scramble soup, salad shakes. Scramble soup, salad shakes. Scramble soup, salad shakes. Eat 90% of your diet from that genre and then add in as much as you can tolerate of fat, sugar, starch, alcohol, salt, the things that make your meals satisfying. Follow that approach. Understand which foods are good for you, buffer foods, and which foods are trigger foods. For example, I love wine. If I have wine at night with my dinner, I am more likely to eat scramble soup, salads, and shakes. I'm more likely to make that meal all about vegetables and protein and a little bit of fat. And if I have the wine, I end up eating less food overall during that meal, and I'm less likely to have dessert after. For other people, they'll have the wine, and it makes them more likely to overeat at that meal, more likely to have dessert, and more likely to have more wine. This is the difference between a buffer food and a trigger food. Wine for me is a buffer food. I should include it because it helps me eat healthier. Wine for other people is a trigger food. They should not include it because it makes them eat less healthy. Now, understand how different this is from the way we're taught nutrition, right? You're just supposed to stay away from wine, period, if you're on a diet. Same thing, by the way, let's take a Hershey's Kiss. How many people know a person who can have one Hershey's Kiss, one one piece of chocolate, and it satisfies them? And as a result of having that chocolate, they end up eating better throughout the day. Or how many people are like me? If you put a bowl of Hershey's Kisses down in front of me, I will eat the whole bowl probably within 30 minutes. So that Hershey's Kiss can act as a buffer food for one person and a trigger food for the other person. So instead of thinking all the things I shouldn't be eating, what we want to be thinking about is scramble soup, salads, and shakes, scramble soup, salads, and shakes, and then I want to include as many of the foods I love as possible, buffer foods, while still getting the results. This is how we need to be thinking. This is a sustainable plan. The other approach sets you up for failure, works against the way the psychology of humans work. It's the only way I've ever seen it work in practice. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I think it will work for a lot of people. Now, because you're a pretty lean guy, like, do you still follow the same approach? Like, can you get lean, like, sub, like, 10% body fat for a guy? Uh, no, uh, let's just be honest about it. Yeah. No, you can't following that approach. Here, here's it, If you're someone who's very overweight, that approach will work great. But for me, that approach keeps me around 15% body fat, 12 to 15% body fat. If I want to go lower, and, he, and this is a great lesson. I'm glad you asked this question because if I want to go lower, my, my metabolism could care less about my vanity concerns. It could care less whether it's convenient for me or not. It does what it does because it thinks it's protecting me from starvation. And so it doesn't really want me to go below 12% body fat. It likes me at 12% body fat. If I want to get below um, you know, 12% body fat, I have to realize I'm going to have to be a little bit more extreme. And I also have to realize that that is probably going to backfire against me. And I'll, I'll give you guys a hint here. Every time I've tried to get below 10% body fat and go as low as I can, guess what happens? I end up going back up to 15 to 20% body fat as a result. So I stopped doing that. I stopped doing that. But I'll give you a hint of how it works. Most people think you got to eat less and exercise more, right? Now, what we've just discussed is that by eating less and exercising more, you almost always push yourself into an exercise less, eat more state. In other words, the dieter almost always goes back to being the couch potato. And most people bounce back and forth from couch potato to dieter, couch potato to dieter. They don't realize that the dieting approach is actually what's making them follow the couch potato approach. It's the reason that they binge, right? Well, there's two other approaches that you want to use that 
are proven throughout history as being the better approaches. One is an eat less, exercise less approach, which would be the traditional hunter-gatherer, or if you want a more modern example, think about the, the Parisian uh, who basically walks around a lot. They have their croissants and they have you know their, their pastries and things like that. They don't eat a lot of them and they move a lot. That's an eat less, exercise less model. That works for people because the gap between intake and output of calories is more narrow. It's not as stressful to the physiology. That's a better approach than eat less, exercise more. Or you can follow the eat more, exercise more approach, which is the athlete approach. No athlete in their right mind uh, exercises like crazy and then cuts calories. And so what most people make the mistake of when they're trying to get lean below like 10% body fat is they're thinking, oh, I'll push the the eat less, exercise more model. That just leads to the opposite effect. So if you really want to start getting lean, you want to toggle back and forth between eat less, exercise less and eat more, exercise more. And when you do that, it's more gentle. But even with that approach, it can backfire on you. So you have to be very, very careful. I typically follow an eat more, exercise more approach because I happen to be someone who likes exercise. Most people who don't like exercise, I tend to like them to follow an eat less, exercise less approach where they walk a ton, they exercise just enough but not too much, and they don't eat a whole lot. And by the way, if you're not exercising a ton, you're probably not going to need to eat a ton. A lot of people don't realize that their, their treadmill habit is what's causing their cheesecake habit, and they need to understand that. And so if you really want to get lean, you need to understand these different, these four different metabolic toggles. Eat more, exercise more creates a high energy flux, which is going to cause the metabolism to say, hey, we're doing a lot. We're eating a lot. I better put on some muscle and take off some fat. And that's the approach that works. And that's, by the way, we already have a set of individuals who we know work on this. Everyone who looks at athletes says, I would like to look like them. Well, they don't follow an eat less, exercise more approach. They follow an eat more, exercise more approach. Eat less, exercise more is not an athlete approach. And isn't it funny that everyone tries to look like an athlete by following something that athletes never do? And so if you really are trying to get lean, eat more, exercise more is going to be your best bet. Does that make sense? I mean, that's basically the way I do it. No, that does make sense. Like at that point, would you want the individual to track macros or just eating to a point where they feel like they're satisfied and then if they go wake up the next day and they hit their workout and they feel like oh like I actually pushed some heavy weight and I feel good and not like I'm dragging my ass and maybe I should have ate more yeah uh, let's be realistic about it for you know ultimately I don't like people counting anything if if possible because it's not a sustainable lifestyle so I like for people to be intuitive, but let's be realistic. For some people to get the results they want, like if you're going to be, if you're going to try to be a bodybuilder and get lean, and I would question why you even want to do that unless you're, you know, a 25 year old, you know, person who just wants, you know, six pack abs so you can get laid. I don't know why you want to do that over the long term. Uh, you know, you want to be able to look at this and essentially say, yes, if you want to get that lean, then you're going to probably have to start counting macros and cutting calories and that kind of stuff. But you also have to understand yourself. Or understand, is that going to uh, serve you in the long run? Being intuitive and understanding how your body functions and doing it intuitive is going to be a better long-term approach, not just when you're 25, but when you're 35 and 45 and 55 and 65. Counting macros and doing all that kind of stuff is probably necessary for many, not all people who want to get super lean, but ask yourself, is that going to serve me in the long run? I know a lot, a lot of guys. I'm out 43 now. I know a lot of people who uh, it's easy to be lean in your 20s. I'll just say that, you know, um, you know, for me, it was and for most people who work out. That's easy. Try being lean in your 40s and 50s. And so a lot of these people who are counting macros and saying all this, uh, I don't necessarily disagree with them. As a matter of fact, if it works, it works. And I think it is necessary for some people. But ask yourself, what's going to be the better long-term approach? Uh, I think most people would agree it's going to be not obsessing about everything that goes in your mouth. No, you're right. And that's why I kind of try to tell my clients, like, stop focusing on such little things and counting calories and counting your macros. Like, let's just focus on getting strong in the gym because – especially with women, like if they can do a couple body weight chin ups and deadlift more than their body weight, like they look pretty good and pretty lean already. So I always try to encourage like more strength goals than what the scale says. 
Yeah, and by the way, I mean, look at it this way, right? We, we all talked about, those following this conversation, we talked about being a metabolic detective. It's not that macros and calories aren't important. They are important. It's which do you let lead and which do you let guide you. There's two ways to do it, right? You can do it either way so long as you are aware of what you're doing. Okay, so let's say you're going to be the type who you say, Jade, I like numbers. Personal preferences matter, right? So I'm going to say, okay, you like numbers. Follow these macros, follow this cal- these calories. Here's your structure. I'm going to give you a calorie count to follow and some macros to follow. You're going to follow a 30-40-30 macronutrient ratio, carb, protein to fat, 30-40-30, and this amount of calories, maybe 2,000. Now, what's going to happen? You're going to follow that. You're going to count everything, and your metabolism is going to respond. It's either going to respond to it favorably or it's going to respond to it unfavorably. How do you know it responds to you unfavorably? Well, you know about the biofeedback signals. Are you more hungry? Are you getting cravings? Is your sleep disturbed? Are you having poor exercise performance and poor exercise recovery. If that's the case, then you need to adjust those macros now. Perhaps you need to move to a 40-30 macro approach. Perhaps you need to bump the calories up a little bit. Perhaps you need to bring the exercise back down a little bit. So long as you're adjusting and playing metabolic detective, it's fine to start with macros and uh, uh, calories. The other approach I like better, though, Just be intuitive. Eat in a way that controls hunger, energy, and cravings, sleep, and mood. And by the way, I have an acronym I use for this. Sleep, hunger, mood, energy, and cravings, S-H-M-E-C, Schmeck. If your Schmeck is in check, then your metabolism is probably balanced. So eat in a way that keeps your Schmeck in check. And then when your Schmeck is in check, when sleep is in check, when hunger is in check, when mood is stable, when energy is stable, when you're not having cravings, then go back and say, oh, by the way, Let me see what my macros are. Let me just do a back calculation for the last three days and calculate calories and see how many I've been consuming and calculate macros and see how many I've been consuming. And now it's a back checking device. So you're not letting calories define your approach, but you are letting them refine your approach. And so there's two ways to do it. The calories first approach and then adjust or the intuitive approach, and then, and then use the calories to inform what you are doing. And by the way, what we know about the metabolism is that it, was, it is changeable. It changes all the time. You increase your output, it will change and push back against you. You get pregnant, it will change and push back against you. You go through an illness, it will change and push back against you. You become sleep deprived, hunger goes up, cravings go up. You go through menopause or andropause, the metabolism changes. Wouldn't you like to have a process and understanding so that you know when the metabolism changes, you don't have to go find some new program. Instead, you just work this process. I eat in a way to get my hunger, energy, cravings in check, keep my schmeck in check. Then I check and see my results. Am I losing fat? Am I toning up? I look at my vitals. Is my blood pressure improving? Is my cholesterol improving? If you are losing fat, keeping schmeck in check, and your vitals are healthy, then I don't care if you're eating donuts and ice cream every day. Now, I think we'd all agree that's probably not going to do the trick, but if it is, then that's probably a good diet for you, right? For most people, though, it's going to be scramble soup, salad shakes, scramble soup, salad shakes, enough but not too much, starch, sugar, fat, alcohol, and then you're basically going to find your zone where Schmeck is in check. Then you can back calculate and say, by the way, what are my macros? And I bet you you'll find that you're in sort of this 40, 30, 30 to 30 to 40, 30 range. And you feel nice and stable and you stay there until Schmeck goes out of check. And then you adjust, increase fiber, increase protein, decrease or increase fat, decrease or increase starch. And you do this for a little while. Next thing you know, you become very, very intuitive and a proficient metabolic detective. Most people are just proficient at following diet programs uh, and it doesn't get them results. What you want to be proficient at is being a metabolic detective. Do you think uh, supplements are necessary all for like either getting lean or weight loss? Because recently, okay, now I was going to get your take on like recently a lot of people like coaches especially have been posting about how BCAAs are just you're basically peeing out expensive urine. Like what do you think about supplements in general? Well, well, that statement is is an ignorant statement because they don't understand biochemistry. Uh, there's not a direct there's not a direct tube from the digestive tract to your urine. If if you have it coming out in your urine, it got in your bloodstream. And we also know that BCAAs, leucine in particular, have benefits on hypertrophy. They impact mTOR in the brain and help us with hunger. We know these things can work. They can be tools. 
But your question was, are they necessary? No, they're not necessary for anybody. We can do this through food. Can they make it easier for some people? Certainly they can. For some people who can't get hunger, energy, and cravings under control, a protein replacement supplement like whey protein is absolutely critical. And that's actually why I have, when I, you know, scramble soup, salads, and shakes. We live in a convenience-based world. The shakes are for the people who got to go get a burger or go to Chipotle or do these kinds of things. We're going to eat convenience-based foods. The reason protein shakes suppress hunger so well is because of branched-chain amino acids. But we can chase every different supplement there is. They can be a tool. Uh, but what most people do is they act like they're doing this magical thing by taking supplements. And the supplement industry is certainly happy to let people think that. You know, do I use supplements? Absolutely. What's my favorite? Protein shakes. Uh, it, to me, it's one of those things where in today's day and age, you don't need it. But it's difficult to get the amount of protein that you need to suppress hunger. And by the way, I'm not saying that protein is necessary for everyone. If you're a vegan or vegetarian, I'm not saying you have to eat meat, but you need to have either fiber to suppress that hunger or protein. We may not have needed it back when we were hunter-gatherers and living on the plains because food just wasn't that available. But in today's day and age where we can consume three to 4,000 calories in one sitting, we need to know which foods will fill us up and keep us satisfied. Fiber is one, protein is the other. And that is what's really important. And I will say one thing here, um, individuals who think that fat is what's gonna fill you up need to bone up on their biochemistry. They're simply wrong. Fat makes protein more satiating. And ketones, if you get into ketosis, can certainly be uh, uh, you know, appetite suppressing. But, macro, but fat of the macronutrients is the least satiating macronutrient. The science is clear on this. But add fat to protein and the satiating potential, hunger suppressing potential of the protein goes way up. And so we need to be clear, protein, fiber, water-based foods, right? PFW, protein, fiber, water, certainly add fat to protein and you're amplifying the hunger suppressing effect, but you're also doing what? Amplifying the caloric load. And so you want to be careful about understanding biochemistry because I know right now it trips me out. I'm just like, do these people even understand biochemistry? We know that fat is not very satiating in and of itself, by itself. It's just not. With protein, it absolutely can be. And if you can get into ketosis, then ketones are very appetite suppressing. But most people are not wanting to go to that extreme, nor would I recommend that. What's your opinion for long-term results with the ketogenic diet? Because now it's kind of been getting really, really popular. And that's like the only thing now I see on Instagram. Like, what's your take on that diet? Well, I mean, think about it, right? It's like, it's the same thing. I've been in this industry a long time. So every diet comes and goes. The ketogenic diet is really nothing new. It's Atkins revisited. The reason why it is uh, found a resurgence is because there's been a lot of great new research on the ketogenic diet. Uh, most people do it uh, uh, all wrong because most people don't understand what it actually takes to get into ketosis. They don't even measure. And when they do measure, they measure their urine. When you don't even know if you're in ketosis unless you are measuring blood. This is all very technical. I actually have a free uh, keto course uh, that you can get on my uh, website. Um, it, you know, it's basically a course that takes you all through this. But here, here's the deal. Ketogenic diets can be very, very effective, especially for certain populations. They also can be a very, very slippery slope. Uh, they can be a very slippery slope because most people never get into ketosis to begin with. They get into what I call the AKZ zone, the almost keto zone. And so what they do is they cut down carbohydrates and sugars and they amp up their fat intake and their protein intake a little bit. Uh, and what they don't understand is that uh, you need to get your carbohydrate, your total carbohydrate down to, for most people, uh, you have to get below about 50. For most people, you're not going to hit ketosis until you get below 30. Not to mention, uh, protein can be used to make blood glucose. And so if you have too much protein in your diet, you won't get into ketosis either. And so most people don't understand this. So they get into this AKZ zone and they feel frankly like crap. It feels good for a couple of days and they think they're losing some weight, which is mostly water because insulin levels have dropped. And then they end up having binge behavior as a result of that. And so if it's done the correct way, 
for certain uh, metabolic types, you know, who would they be? People who are extremely insulin resistant, people with epilepsy, maybe people with cancer. The research is telling us there's some uh, people with Alzheimer's. The research is telling us there are some very, very, uh, you know, compelling reasons to go on a ketogenic diet. But understand that you need to do it right and understand that I've never really seen anyone that I can't think of one person who's uh, adopted a ketogenic diet. Um, Actually, I do. I should rephrase it. I do know a few who have made it a lifestyle and who follow it pretty much. uh, But most people aren't doing it that way. They are basically using it. Uh, the same way they use the, the eight-week detox or this, this, and that, right? And it's not a lifestyle. So it can be very beneficial. It's a slippery slope for most people because they approach it wrong. And if you're going to do it, you need to understand uh, and measure and know that uh, everyone's a little bit different. So what gets me into ketosis is going to be a little different than you, which is going to be a little different than everyone else. Awesome. That was really good. Um, for the last question, because we're already coming up to the like an hour, um, I kind of want to shift gears. And if you had to do a TED talk outside of the fitness and health industry, what topic would you talk about? Yeah, easily it would be meaning. Uh, you know, and by I think we have an, an epidemic of lack of meaning in uh, in our society, and I think it's the major reason why people struggle so much. And I think it goes right to the core of uh, health and fitness. You know, what a lot of people, the uninitiated don't realize that people like me and you and people who live this lifestyle, we don't do it for vanity concerns. We don't even really do it to feel better or live longer. We do it because it feeds into our meaning. It's part of our identity of who we are. You know, for example, I'm a teacher. Uh, I uh, want to touch, move and inspire people to change their lives on many levels. And to me, I see me being fit uh, as part of that. If I'm overweight, if I'm not uh, looking the part, I can't do my job effectively. So it fits into my meaning for someone who's a businessman who's overweight, trying to get in shape. They need to understand how their exercise program fits into their meaning. Maybe their meaning is to be functional and sharp at work. And they basically say, well, when I'm fit and I'm working out and I'm going for walks and I'm eating well, my brain is sharp. I can function. Maybe someone is, you know, a, uh, a new mom who their major, uh, you know, sort of thing is being the best mom possible. And they realize that the choices they're making about not being active and not eating healthy are actually causing their children to pick up bad habits. And because their children mean everything to them, they can tie that meaning. And all of a sudden, they are now beginning to live the lifestyle because they have a reason for doing it. Ultimately, in the end, we humans do what we do. We have a desire to, I think, leave something behind, to make a difference, to have our life mean something. What are the things that we are willing to fight for, die for, bleed for, scar for? That is ultimately um, what I think we need to spend more time thinking about. And when we have that, you know, Nietzsche said, right, you know, anyone with uh, a strong why to live for can bear any how. And I believe that to be very true. We need to understand our individual why, our meaning. And then we have to tie the things that we do. Our choices need to tie directly into that. Part of the reason people can't stick to a diet and exercise program is because they're doing it for all the wrong reasons. They're doing it because they want to look good in a bathing suit. How about doing it because you want to inspire your children, right? That's a whole different way of thinking about it. And so from my perspective, that's why self-development and self-help is so important because, you know, look, honestly, I'll say this and many people are going to get maybe upset with me and and not like me very much, but that's just fine with me. I'm not really attached to that. But to me, if you are doing nothing but obsessing about diet and exercise, to me, uh, you're a pretty boring person and someone without meaning in your life. And what I would say is, you know, this life is not about obsessing about diet and exercise all the time. This life is about smiling at the person in line and back of you. This life is about sharing something, teaching your nieces and nephews something. This life is about learning, teaching, and loving from my point of view. Uh, It's not about, you know, um, what nutrition team am I on? And I need to be obsessing about looking, uh, you know, having six pack abs and that kind of stuff. That's not what moves us. When we're on our deathbeds, we're not going to be thinking about, man, I wish I had stayed on that diet a little bit longer so I could have gotten 7% body fat instead of eight. 
what we're going to do is I wish I had loved a little bit more. I wish I had learned this or had this experience. I wish I could have contributed in this way. And to me, that's all that matters. Man, that was amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, you're completely right. And like, I love questions like this that automatically just kind of filter back into the fitness and health industry. And I just like getting other people's perspective. Like, yeah, it was just amazing. You're awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I I appreciate that, man. You too. Uh, So very last question, where can people find you online? What's your newest project? I think you said the, the book and where can they find you on social media and stuff like that? Just go plug away. Yeah, you know, the best place to get me is at Jade Tita. Uh, Probably on Instagram is the best place to catch me if you want to give me a shout out, if you want to ask me a question. Instagram is where I spend most of my time. You know, my expertise is mind, muscle, metabolism. And on Instagram is probably where I do most of that. JadeTita.com, you know, sort of is my website where you can find all my different projects. But yeah, check me out at at uh, JadeTita.com. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time. This is just plain amazing. I appreciate you, brother. Thanks for your work. It's so important. And uh, thanks for having me on. All right. So that's going to wrap up episode 55 with Jade Tita. I told you this episode was freaking awesome. Now, I mentioned earlier in the episode that I will be at the Perform Better uh, Summit. Uh, hit me up, email me, let me know you're going. I'd love to meet you. And again, in a couple weeks, keep an eye out for the Cut the Shit, Get Fit t-shirts are going to be on for sale. I'm only going to have them available for one week. So please show, not so, show your support for the show by by buying one of these t-shirts. And I will be super pumped, super happy. And I'll personally email you and tell you how awesome you are. And I'll see you guys next week.